Hello, my name is Nicole Jolin. The Old Testament reading is found in Proverbs 30, 7 through 9. Two things I ask of you. Don't keep them from me before I die. Fraud and lies, keep them far from me. Don't give me either poverty or wealth. Give me just the food I need, or I will be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or I'll be poor and steal and dishonor my God's name. The word of the Lord. Good morning, my name is David. The New Testament reading is taken from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 to 19. Tell people who are rich at this time not to become egotistical and not to place their hope in their finances, which are uncertain. Instead, they need to hope in God who richly provides everything for our enjoyment. Tell them to do good, to be rich in the good things they do, to be generous, and to share with others. When they do these things, they will save a treasure for themselves that is a good foundation for the future. That way, they can take hold of what is truly life. The word of the Lord. Hello, my name is Randy Lynn. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in Luke 12, 15 through 21. Then Jesus said to them, watch out, guard yourself against all kinds of greed. After all, one's life isn't determined by one's possessions, even when someone is very wealthy. Then he told them a parable. A certain rich man's land produced a bountiful crop. He said to himself, what will I do? I have no place to store my harvest. Then he thought, here's what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. That's where I'll store all my grain and goods. I'll say to myself, you have stored up plenty of goods, enough for several years. Take it easy, eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. But God said to him, fool, tonight you will die. Now who will get the things you have prepared for yourself? This is the way it will be for those who hoard things for themselves and aren't rich towards God. The Gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing with me as we pray this morning. Father and Son and Holy Spirit, we pray that your word would be living and active to us, sharper than any double-edged sword, that it would uh, pierce into our very lives and begin to show us the way of Christ, would discern for us how it is that we're meant to live out our days in honor and worship and surrender and service to you. Teach us, we pray in your name. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Good to see you, New Life Downtown. Hello to everybody that's watching online today. We love you. We miss you. Hope that you're doing well. Special welcome to anyone who's visiting today, uh, especially I know some of you are in town for Thanksgiving week, uh, here visiting uh, family that are here. Some of you maybe are getting ready to travel and go somewhere else uh, this week. But if you're here early uh, and starting the festivities early with your family, welcome. For everybody that's traveling this next week, safe travels uh, to you all. It's good to be back with you last week. 
week, Sarah and I were in Indianapolis preaching for a friend on Sunday morning. Then we drove down to Wilmore, Kentucky, just outside of Lexington, where our alma mater, Asbury Theological Seminary, is, uh, and spent a few days listening to N.T. Wright uh, who was in town to give a series of lectures. So uh, some of you know who he is. He's a premier New Testament scholar and one of, uh, one of my heroes kind of in his writing and teaching has been uh, so helpful for me in my own Christian journey. But it is good to be back here with you all. Special thanks to Amber Ayers for preaching last week for us. Uh, so thank you, Amber. We love you. So grateful to be part of life and community together with you. I did my undergraduate degree uh, at Oral Roberts University. Uh, I was a freshman back in 1997. Uh, I was actually relatively new to uh, my walk with Jesus at that time. And really reading the scriptures for the first time was a sign to read through the New Testament for my New Testament intro class. It was my first sort of you know, foray into trying to read large chunks of scripture. And two things happened that year while I was working my way through the New Testament for the first time. The first one was that fall, Mother Teresa died. Some of you know uh, the story of Mother Teresa, who uh, was a devout Catholic nun who gave her life to serving the poor of Calcutta in India. This is a woman who, out of her love and devotion for Jesus, took a vow of poverty to go and live among the poor. At the same time, we had a revival speaker. Uh, it was either that fall or that spring. I can't quite remember anymore because it was a, a few years ago. And uh, the revival speaker spent a lot of the time talking about having enough faith for the Lord to give him a private plane. And so I was suddenly faced as a relatively new believer with two very different perspectives on Christians and money. Christians and wealth, really the two extremes that we find. On one hand, I saw and was reading the stories of a woman who, so in love with Jesus and the people of the world, decided to forsake everything and go live among the poor. And then others saying, if you just have enough faith in Jesus, then you can have whatever it is that you want. And I'm reading the New Testament going, ah! <laughs> what do I do? I was a college student, so I was broke, so I didn't really, I didn't have a lot to like think through. Uh, but it led me into this sort of crisis uh, and led me to thinking a whole lot about how do we as Christians understand our relationship to wealth, to money, to riches? Uh, how do we think through those things together? We're in the sixth and final week in a series through Paul's first letter to Timothy, a letter that he wrote sometime probably in the mid-60s, not the 1960s, but the 60s. Um, and while Timothy was staying in a city called Ephesus, Paul and he and, and Timothy were traveling through and Paul asked him to stay behind in the city because he noticed in all the house churches around the city there was beginning to be uh, false teaching that different perspectives on the gospel and the way of Jesus were beginning to be taught and taking hold inside of these house churches. And so Paul commissioned Timothy to stay back uh, and to begin to address this with the leaders and the communities around that city. Because what was happening is that this false teaching was actually destroyed 
distorting the way that they were thinking about God, the way they were thinking about themselves, the way they were thinking about Christian community, the way they were thinking about their life together. And because it was distorting their thinking, it was then destroying their unity. It was actually breaking up what it is that God had brought together. And Timothy, or Paul goes back into this idea, giving us another glimpse of what's happening at the beginning of 1 Timothy chapter 6. He says, if anyone teaches anything different, this is verse 3, if anyone teaches anything different, it doesn't agree with the sound teaching about our Lord Jesus Christ, a teaching that is consistent with godliness, with living in the way of Jesus, then that person is conceited. That person is proud or arrogant. They actually don't understand anything, but have a sick obsession with debates and arguments. And this obsession just creates jealousy and conflict and verbal abuse and evil suspicions. There's constant bickering between people whose minds are ruined and who've been robbed of the truth. They think that godliness is a way to make money. Paul sort of comes out with it right away that those who are teaching a false gospel or a false understanding of the way of Jesus are actually doing so out of extreme arrogance that they claim to have an epistemological superiority, that they're basically saying that we know better or we know more than Jesus and his, and his students. We actually know something that they didn't. We know something more or we know something better. Some claiming maybe from Gnosticism to have access to a new secret knowledge Others claiming to be experts in Old Testament law, which they were not. Others sort of blending together Greco-Roman mythology with Christian teaching and saying, but look, if we put all of this together, then we have this. And Paul says that the fruit of that tree is a sick obsession with infighting. In other words, the fruit of that tree is just drama. <laughs> it's drama in the community, drama that rivals most middle schools and whatever is trending on Twitter, if Twitter makes it. There's just fighting and constant sort of debates. But here's the thing about drama. Drama actually sells. Drama is easily monetized. That things that are consistent and true and peaceful and the things that have always been taught everywhere, always, at all time, they don't create much drama. But adding new things, coming up with new ideas, or standing in opposition to one another, claiming to have unique insight or expertise, and then saying to one's opponents that they're ignorant, or that those who are trying to tell them, hey, you've not actually can't teach that here, claiming that they're censoring them, those kinds of things actually can turn quite a profit. We actually know that. We see it all over in our world. And in the religious arena, it's actually possible to call that godliness and to claim persecution because of the way that people are saying, no, 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 that's actually not the way of Jesus. Paul comes around and says, sorry, that's not godliness, that's greed. That's greed that's coming out of arrogance. And this comment for Paul, as he, he sort of mentions money again, opens a reoccurring theme for him in 1 Timothy. 
where he, at numerous points along the letter, addresses the relationship between Christians and money, between Christians and riches or Christians and wealth. We saw it for the first time in chapter two is he's addressing the situation going on with wealthy women who are coming out of the cult of Artemis and they're leveraging their wealth into positions of influence and they're dressing in these ostentatious sort of ways displaying actually their allegiance to the goddess rather than to Jesus and reflecting the goddess's image rather than Jesus's image. And they're using their wealth in ways that are actually not helpful for the community. In verse, in chapter three, when we're looking through the qualifications of leaders in the church, they're said a couple times there that those leaders should not be greedy. But then he comes back around in chapter six, but they should be paid well. So there's this sort of tension in there around how we think about those issues. Then last week, Amber shared with us out of chapter five, uh, where there's a, a call from the church to care for the vulnerable, to kind of gather resources together in order to care for the, mar- the marginalized and the vulnerable and the poor in our midst. But that requires an incredible amount of discernment about our financial resources and about reciprocal relationships and how that works out in community with one another. Now in chapter six, Paul just cracks the conversation fully open. And he dives in in two different moments talking about Christians and wealth. In his final discourse, what he does is he identifies three temptations that we all face when it comes to money. Three temptations that are sort of inherent in our relationship to wealth. The first one is the temptation of misdirected love. The temptation of misdirected love. He says this in verse 10, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. The original language is actually a root of all kinds of evil. It's not the only root for evil, but it is a root of all kinds of evil. And some have even wandered away from the faith and have impaled themselves, causing themselves great pain because they made money their goal. They made money their aim. They made money their obsession. They made money their love. Perhaps the greatest danger that we face in relationship to money is our desire for it. It's a longing that is akin to love. And it doesn't just affect the rich. It affects the rich and the poor and everyone in between. That sometimes finances, money can consume our thoughts, can capture our imagination and command all of our time. And can tempt us to sacrifice everything on the altar of gaining more. Sacrificing our relationships, sacrificing our health, sacrificing our ethics, our morals, even a willingness to sacrifice the money that we do have in order to get more, taking some sort of great risk or gamble in order to win that $1.9 million Powerball prize, (laughs) whatever it happens to be. But we find that money is actually a terrible lover. We can love it, but it cannot love us. The love of money is always an unrequited love. It's a love that never satisfies. It's a love that always leaves us wanting, always leaves us wanting more. J.D. Rockefeller was famously asked, for those of you who don't know who Rockefeller was, he was considered the richest American in history, um, pre-Elon Musk. He's now past him in terms of inflation, but it was estimated at the height of his wealth that according to like today's standards, Rockefeller would have been worth $400 billion in today's monetary 
amounts. And he was asked one time in a conversation, how much money is enough? And he famously replied, just a little bit more. Just another dollar more. $400 billion, and it wasn't enough. There was something about it that left him unsatisfied. So the first temptation we, we face is the love of money, the desire for it in a way that captures our souls. The second temptation we face is the temptation of mistaken pride. Paul puts it this way. He says, tell people who are rich at this time not to become egotistical. What's the pride that gets associated here? I think it's the sense that it's easy for us to believe that our financial success is solely or at least primarily the result of our own skill, our own effort, our own genius. That look what our hands have made. We've done it. We've created all of this. It's mine. Which causes us to have a sort of hoarding, protective, controlling kind of relationship to these things. Of course, we do play a role. It's partially true that the accumulation of things is the result of our efforts. He even recognizes that godliness often profits, that accumulation often follows wisdom and diligence and hard work and honesty and going about those things in our workplaces but not always. Sometimes profit follows immoral actions by doing things that actually harm oneself or harm other people in the world. That there's a way to accumulate wealth in unjust ways. But the temptation here is to mistakenly believe that everything that we have is from our own hands. And when we believe that, we actually fail to recognize the grace of God in our lives. That God's the one who's given us life that God's the one who's given us strength, that God's the one who's given us whatever abilities that we have. And it's a failure to recognize the role of others, the way that God actually works in our lives through other people, that they become carriers of God's grace. Those that cared for us when we couldn't care for ourselves. Those that provided education for us. Those that encouraged us to take different steps in our career. Those that opened doors and created opportunities for us. According to the Christian point of view, there's no such thing as a self-made person but we can mistakenly believe that this is all the work of our own hand. The third and final temptation that Paul talks about here is the temptation of misplaced hope. It says, tell people who are rich not to place their hope on their finances, which are uncertain. When we think about the future, when we envision sort of our lives, our core hope oftentimes, whenever you talk to people about what do you hope to be true at the end of your days, our core hope is often articulated as financial security. That that's the thing that we're, 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 we're longing for. We no longer want to live with worry. The anxiety that accompanies us every time we have an unexpected bill, with each employment crisis, with each interest rate hike, with each market drop, with those car repairs that just seem to keep, seem to keep coming in. You're like, I did not plan for this one. Where is that going to come from? And then anxiety is like, do we repair it? Do we not repair it? Do we keep it on the road? Do we not keep it on the road? Do we go? This is just my anxiety at this moment as I think about my, one of our vehicles. It's like, what do we do here? And that longing for, for financial security that we have is normal. It's even good. We see glimpses of it in the prophetic tradition in the Old Testament. 
that as the prophets are trying to get a glimpse into the future, kind of looking into the, the fog and saying, what's it gonna be like when God is fully king? And they're thinking about new creation. They often say things like this, Micah 4, 4, all will sit underneath their own grapevines and their own fig trees. That all will have their property and all will have the provision that comes along with that. But the temptation is just to place our hope in our own versions of vines and fig trees rather than the God that sets everything to right in the world. So actually our temptation to actually hope in those things, to trust our future to our career trajectory, to our investment portfolio, to our diversified income streams, to the stock market or real estate holdings or a lottery ticket, whatever it happens to be. All of which, not the lottery ticket, but all the others are good pursuits. <laughs> But they're not guarantees. They're not guarantees. It's foolish or dangerous, according to the scriptures, to put ultimate confidence in something that's uncertain. Life is unpredictable. So is money. In the gospel story that was read for us today, Jesus is telling the story of a parable, or telling a parable of a farmer who hits a bumper crop. It's sort of the agricultural version of the lottery. It's like, I have so much crop, I can't even store it all. And so the guy says, what should I do with all of this that's come in? It's like, I know I'm gonna tear down my barns and just build bigger ones so that I can stop working and then just enjoy myself for the years to come. And then at the end of the parable, he discovers that life is actually much shorter than he imagined. This doesn't mean that we don't plan that we don't invest, that we don't have budgets, that we don't work hard, that we don't think through all of those pieces, that we don't have insurance, that we don't think about all of those things. That I'm not saying any of that. But there is a difference between wise planning and sort of hoarding and hoping that that's going to be the thing that saves us. There is a big difference between those things. Hoarding is actually an act of control and selfishness and those things and putting our hope in something that's actually slippery. We're called as the people of God to put our hope in him, not in those other things. And so how do we avoid these traps? First Timothy, Paul commends to us three postures for us to take. They're not, I don't think they're the only ones that Christians take toward finances, but there are our core postures toward money. And the first posture he recommends is this, is a posture of contentment that frees our affections. A posture of contentment that frees our affections. He says this, 1 Timothy 6, 6, actually godliness is a great source of profit when it is combined with being happy with what you already have. We didn't bring anything into this world, and so we won't take anything out of it. So we'll be happy with food and clothing. This may be the most countercultural passage that we could read this morning. I read an article one time from an ad executive who described the world of marketing as the organized creation of dissatisfaction. No offense to any marketers in the room, okay? But the organized creation of dissatisfaction, it hits me every time that there is some tech upgrade or breakthrough that suddenly I now need something I did not know existed before. It's like, I need it, I crave it. I think, oh, this phone's only six months old, but look at what that one can do. If I swipe, it does something different. <laughs> oh, I think I need that. 
for the cool price of $800 or whatever it is. We have this dissatisfaction that gets created in us all the time. And so we're called to cultivate contentment. For Paul, this is a posture that's birthed in eschatology, that's birthed in our view of the end of all things, that whatever we have, we can't bring it with us. But instead, we trust a God who's going to provide for our every needs. It's nurtured by simplicity, by learning to have a deep satisfaction with our basic needs being met in the world. It's reflected in that Old Testament reading where the proverb says, Lord, give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me my daily bread. It's the proverb that Jesus is quoting when he teaches us how to pray, to be content with our daily bread. This posture of contentment actually frees us from the love of money that we might learn how to love God, the one who provides those things for us. The second posture that gets commended to us is a posture of humility that right-sizes our role in the world. (laughs) It right-sizes our role in our future, that right-sizes our role in relationship to all things. He says in verse 17, instead they need to hope in God who richly provides everything for our enjoyment. It is God who richly and abundantly provides everything to us for our benefit, for our delight, for our joy. Yes, we play a part, but the fact that we have life, that we have breath, that we have strength, that we have opportunity, that we have wisdom, that we have skill, that we have insight, that we have education, that we have any of these things, it's all a gift from God who gives us all of those things. Here Paul's echoing what we talked about in chapter four, that God makes everything good and everything God makes is a gift given to us to be gratefully received and everything God makes is a gift to be faithfully enjoyed. We recognize that and what that teaches us is a posture of humility that actually makes gratitude possible. Next is possible instead to live with arrogance or conceits or with pride, but actually live in a way of like, God, thank you for this. And it begins to sort of unclench our fists. We say, God, thank you. Thank you for all that you've entrusted to me. Thank you for every opportunity you've given me. Thank you for the day that I have to go to work today. Thank you, you provided a job for me. Thank you. And all of a sudden, our disposition toward work and toward finances and toward what we have and what we don't have begins to change because gratitude takes root in us in some way. It fills us and redirects us. The last posture he recommends is this, is a posture of generosity that enacts our future. A posture of generosity that actually enacts the future of the world. It says, tell them to do good, verse 18 to be rich in the good things that they do, to be generous and to share with others because when they do these things, they will save a treasure for themselves that is a good foundation for the future, for life in the world to come. That way they can take hold of what is truly life, the life that never ends in God's new creation, the core of Christian hope is eternal life and resurrected bodies and a new creation. That's the core of our hope. That new creation is a world without worry and a world without lack. A world without worry and a world without lack. 
And so a posture of generosity is birthed in the recognition that there is a day that is going to come where there will be no worry and there will be no lack. And so we're invited as the people of God to actually learn how to live now like we will live then. This is the, the journey of discipleship, is to learn how to live now like we will live in the future and to live in such a way that helps others to see and experience and even taste a little bit of that future now. And so the scriptures are always calling the people of God who have resources to be people who are of generosity, to be people who give. We give as an act of faith or an act of trust that places our hope in God. It says we're gonna take a portion of what we have here and we're gonna give it because we're trusting our future into God's hands. This is a signpost of that. It's an act of worship that expresses gratitude. God, this, everything I have is yours. So I'm giving you a portion as a way of saying thanks. You gave me a gift to give to you. And so I'm giving it back. And it's an act of justice that cares for our community. It cares for those in our own church that are going through financial crisis in a way to care for our city and others who are going through hard times. Throughout history, the people of God have offered a portion of their produce or a portion of their income in these ways, as an act of trust, an act of worship, an act of justice, as a way of saying, we love you, we trust you, and we care about the world. And what the church has historically done is entrusted that into the care of leaders to provide for and to discern how to take care of the needs of the community and then to be an outreach to the world. There's lots of conversations about this in scripture and throughout history. How much do we give? What percentage do we give? A lot of people will say, well, the, the scriptures teach is to tithe, to give 10%. It's based on some conversations in the Old Testament. But when you look at the entirety of the Old Testament, what the people of God end up giving is actually much higher than that for many of them. For some, it's a bit lower. It depends upon the way the sacrificial system works out, where they find themselves out, and where they find themselves in the economic system, and whether or not they have resources or they do not have resources. It's not always as simple as we want to make it out. The New Testament doesn't use percentages. The New Testament tells us stories. It tells us the story of a widow who brings a mite, who brings a, a very small amount of what she has and offers it. And Jesus commends her, praises her, and tells us the story of a rich young ruler who Jesus invites him to give everything that he has to the poor, and he walks away sad. It tells us the story of Zacchaeus who defrauded people in order to get more money, and Jesus says, hey, I want to eat with you. And out of that process of eating with Jesus, Zacchaeus refunds everything that he defrauded to other people. He wants to make it right to others. Paul tells us that God loves, or God calls us to give freely, and God loves a cheerful giver. So there's a sense here that we're always meant to be living in a place where we're prayerfully being led by the Spirit into the life of, uh, into a generous life. That that's actually the discipleship process, is not to just sort of say, okay, I've chosen a percentage and I never have to think about this again, but to actually say, okay, God, what have you entrusted to me? And how is it that you're asking me to be wise with those things to plan for the future and to be generous with those things to care for those that are around me? For Sarah and I, we continue just to have conversations over and over and over and over again. 
of saying, how do we live in the tension of the scriptures with freedom? And the goal that we've set for ourselves is to give a higher percentage of our income away every year than we did the year before. Sometimes that's just moving like one-tenth of a percent. And there's been times that because of unexpected circumstances in our lives where we couldn't give more than we gave the year before. But every year as we come to the end of the year and we look at our budget for the year ahead, we kind of stop and say, okay, Jesus, how is it that you're inviting us into a life of generosity? We give first and foremost to the church, to New Life Downtown, and then we give to missionary partners and to local partners here in our community. And I wanna say thank you to all of you who live in that way toward one another here. That here we are coming through the end of 2022, a year where we've gone through lots of transition as a community, a major leadership transition, just a year being back home after a year and a half of exile, a year that we faced record inflation all across our city where I know that many of you have faced financial difficulties that you've never experienced before. And yet we find ourselves having or giving being exactly the same this year as it was last year, which is just incredible. The way that you've continued to give faithfully that we might care for one another. So I just want to say thanks to you for being a generous congregation and encourage you to continue to take a posture of prayer. Say, okay, Jesus, what does it mean to follow you by the Spirit into a life of generosity? How is it that we learn to live as open-handed people? As the worship team comes forward and as Sarah comes to lead us to the table, we actually learn this way of life here at the table. The table to me is the place where we actually learn so much about the Christian life. But we come here to the table open-handed. We don't bring anything here. This isn't a potluck. We're not offering anything to the meal. Instead, we come open-handed recognizing that we've brought nothing with us. And yet then we're given our daily bread. God meets our needs for us here. We come in humility with open hands. We receive our daily bread and our taught contentments. And we then are sent back out as those who've been filled with God to go and enter into the world as generous people. Sometimes sharing finances, sometimes sharing time, sometimes sharing kind words and encouragement, sometimes sharing acts of service, sometimes sharing all kinds of other things, but we leave as people have been filled up that we might give out generously to a world so desperately in need of the grace of God.